All right, please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Luke 12. We're in Luke 12 this morning, going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, not continuing in Ecclesiastes. Uh, As a matter of fact, we won't actually be back in Ecclesiastes until uh, probably, I think, what, four weeks from now? This week we're going to be in Luke morning and evening. Next week I'll be preaching a message on uh, missions as we prepare for the missionaries that are coming the week after. That evening will be in Luke. Uh, The next week is the missionaries. The two weeks after that I will be absent. And then the week after that is when we'll dig back into Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, get back uh, into what Solomon has to tell us there in the Old Testament. Uh, For today, however, both morning and evening, we're just going to continue right along in the book of Luke, uh, following that which we covered last Sunday night. In some ways, in some ways, we might call this a little bit of a part two. It really isn't. Uh, It's it's an entirely new message. I didn't write it as a part two. And yet at the same time, uh, it's going to be very closely linked to that which we spoke of last week. I know some of you weren't here in the evening last week, so I'll do a little bit of a review this morning in just a moment to catch you up to speed. Uh, last time we were together, in the final verses of Luke 11, we considered the danger of what, what I called religious evil, which really boils down to religious hypocrisy. We defined religion as a tool to be used by the follower of Jesus Christ in order to guide us into worship and into obedience, a framework in order to guide our worship and our obedience. Religion is not in and of itself our source of divine favor. Uh, That source is Jesus Christ alone. We do what we do out of a heart of love for him. Religion is designed as that framework within which our relationship with God operates. It's intended to guide us into obedience, to guide us into reverence, to guide us into worship, driven by a pre-existing and perfected relationship with God by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Luke 11, we read as Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers for looking good on the outside, having the outside of the cup clean, religious zeal, but not actually Serving and loving God. The inside of the cup was filthy. They defined their loyalty to God by their outward religious devotion rather than their inward spirit of obedience. Jesus rebuked them for placing heavy burdens on religious conformity while living hypocritically immoral lives themselves. Jesus rebuked them for having erected memorials to the prophets that their fathers had slain, while simultaneously carrying on the same philosophies that drove their fathers to these murderous actions in rejection of the word of God. And from this we drew three conclusions. We drew out three applications last week. Application number one, religion is not a source of righteousness, it is an outlet for righteousness. Religion is a path to destruction when we convince ourselves that it should define our righteousness rather than guide our obedience. This is what many uh, other religions do today. They, they believe that their religious devotion, that the religious acts that they do is somehow going to earn them salvation, earn them heaven. It doesn't work that way, the Bible. Bible tells us. Second, religion is not a weapon, it is a tool. Religion is a path to destruction when we use it as a weapon to threaten people into thoughts, actions, or conformity, rather than as a tool, a framework for loving 
worship and obedience. And I got a really good question last week after the service about this, because as we consider religion and the the things that we do religiously, whether that's reading our Bible or praying or coming to church, these are things that we ought to do, right? These are things that we ought to do. They're things that we ought to feel a a, a pressure almost, a a desire and a a compulsion to do. It's something where if I'm just going to sit at home and, and stay on the couch and eat potato chips instead of go to church, there ought to be something in me that says this is a problem, something drawing me. Furthermore, we we understand that religion is oftentimes done not necessarily when we're feeling up to doing things, right? Uh, Sometimes we don't feel like going to church. We don't feel like reading our Bible in the morning, but we do it because religion has helped us. And there's two concepts here that I just want to clarify. Number one is the difference between, uh, when we talk about religion as a weapon, we're talking about the difference between guilt and condemnation or conviction. Okay, so guilt and conviction are two entirely different things. And they're in two entirely different things because they, ser- they, they have two entirely different ends. And this is how you know the difference between guilt and conviction. How do I know whether or not I'm feeling guilt, which is, is foreign to the scriptures, right? It's foreign to God. It's foreign to salvation by grace through faith. Obviously, guilt is found in the scriptures, but it's not intended to be a part of the Christian life and the relationship with God. Guilt and shame Condemnation, they were all finished in Christ. But conviction is a good thing. How do we know? Well, we know by its fruit. Everything, like everything in life, by its fruit, you will know them, right? So we know it by its fruit. Pastor, what does that mean? Well, guilt, shame, and condemnation. The fruit of guilt, shame, and condemnation is, it's a demotivator. It brings me to a place where I feel as though I, I am, I, because of my shame, I can't do right, or God can't use me, or I um, should not serve God because I'm too much of a failure. It leads me to a path of weakness, to a path of destruction. It leads me to a path of inevitable uh, um, sorrow and perhaps depression. Guilt, shame, and condemnation tear me down and leave me worse off for it than if I had not experienced it. Conviction is not that way. Conviction of the Holy Spirit, conviction of God through His Holy Spirit, is intended to draw us into betterment. At the end of conviction, should I yield to it? Should I humble myself before it? I become a better man. I'm drawn closer to God. Conviction does not make me want to hide from God. It makes me want to flee to God. Adam and Eve felt guilt in the Garden of Eden. So they fled from the Lord when they knew that they were naked. And the Lord came to walk with them in the cool of the day. Conviction causes me to flee to Christ. Psalm 51. When David says, my sin is ever before me. And as he recognizes his sin, he flees to Christ and he says, mend me. That's conviction. Do you understand the difference? Guilt tears you down. Gives you shame. You have to deal with that one way or another. Sometimes you deal with it by quitting. Other times you deal with it by becoming a hypocrite. I don't want to feel the guilt anymore, so I'm just going to do right on the outside so that nobody can make me feel guilty. I'm just going to come to church. I'm just going to wear that to church. I'm just going to do that thing. I'm just going to check the list off of my Bible. I'm just going to do those things so that I can show others and so that I can not feel guilty 
so that they're not going to bother me, so that they're not going to guilt me, so that they're not going to shame me. Conviction says, you know what? I ought to be reading my Bible more. I ought to be going to church. There's no reason not to. I ought to be going in church. You know what? My job is keeping me from being in church. I should, I, I should trust the Lord and, and uh, change some things in my job so I can be in church. Because I love the Lord and I want to do what's right. Consequently, the second idea that I mentioned, uh, not just the idea of the difference between guilt and the difference between conviction, using religion as a weapon, but we also have that second idea as we consider using religion as a weapon, and that's the, the, the reality that religion is a framework that is intended to help us on the days that we don't want to do what's right. Right? That's the point. That's why we wreck standards. We erect standards so that on the days where we're weak and we mess up on the standard, the standard is far enough away from, from the cliff of sin, the fence of my standard is far enough away from the cliff of sin, that if I jump the fence of the standard, I don't fall into the cliff of sin. So I erect strong standards in my life, not because everybody has to have that standard, not because if I offend the standard, I have sinned, but I have the standard in my life to keep me from the edge that is sin. And so some people have more strict standards than others because they want to stay farther back from the cliff or they know their own propensities toward a certain sin so they put the fence back farther than maybe someone else because they're more prone to that sin. Religion is the same way as a framework. Religion is designed by God so that on the morning that I get up and I say, oh, I don't want to read my Bible, but I ought to. That is religious training in you. Oh, I don't want to go to church today. I'm tired, but you know what? I need to be in church. And that's not a bad thing. So I'm thankful for that being brought up last week because I think those clarifications can help us. Uh, we must hasten on, however. I have gotten a, a little bit, uh, I got a little carried away with that. Uh, and then third, pure religion is an outward manifestation of an inward devotion. Pure religion is not based upon an outward act, but rather an outward manifestation of a heart compelled devotion to Christ. So last time we were together, we focused upon the evils that religion can cause, and indeed as one considers the history of religion, whether uh, it was the Crusades uh, of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, which were uh, ended up being quite a black eye to the church, or whether we're talking about today, the jihad of Islam, Religion is compelling evil and, and, and has, in many times in history, compelled evil. But thank God, as we mentioned last time, that we don't serve a religion. Thank God we are a part of a living, thriving, personal relationship with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. Thank God that we can use religion in all virtue and reverence to guide us into higher heights of a personal relationship rather than into the depths of religious frustration. But there is something foundational to religion, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Something which Jesus will call fear toward those who live in hypocrisy, but which we often will define, and fear is a right term for it, but love as well. And let me begin with an illustration. We know from scriptures that love is not a feeling, it is a choice. Love contains feeling. Love brings feelings and emotions along with it, but love is not a feeling. Thank God, love is not a feeling. Because if God had to feel love toward us in order to love us, we'd all be in trouble. Because we were 
enemies of God in our minds through our wicked works when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we had to wait for God to feel love toward us, we'd all be in hell. However, love is not a feeling at its root. Love is a choice. The essence of love is compelled by my determination to place my love upon someone or something and then devote myself to their best, to their best interests, regardless of my interests or circumstances. Devoting myself to their best, regardless of self-interest or circumstance. Now, I have chosen to love my wife. And I have vowed uh, on the altar, at the, the wedding altar, to make that choice every day until death do us part. That every day I vow to her, I'm going to love you. What that means is not I'm going to feel love toward you, uh, although, Lord willing, that's typically the case in our, our, our marriages, but that's not a requirement. Because at the wedding altar, I did not say I'm going to feel good toward you every day. I said I'm going to love you every day. And love is a choice. So I wake up every day and make the choice to love my wife. So there are various days and events built into my life in order to express my love toward her, right? We pray together every night. We give each other a kiss. We say good night, and we say we love each other before bed. This is something that is built into our relationship in order to express love. So there are various days and events uh, that, that we would have on the calendar as well, right? Anniversary, birthday, holidays as expressions of our love. We get little gifts for one another from time to time. We go on dates to spend quality time together and reaffirm our commitment to one another. And each of these exercises, if I may put it this way, is a religious action designed to affirm our choice that we chose to love one another. Now, whether or not those actions take place, whether or not my wife and I go out on dates, whether or not uh, we give each other gifts, whether or not we celebrate these holidays, whether or not we do these things, we still ought to love one another and choose to do that every day. We vowed to do so. But you know, those religious elements of our lives, those elements that we build into them, these help us. They grow us closer to one another. They give us the time to work on that relationship. They help us focus in on that relationship and make it better. These things do not define our love. And if they do define our love, then our relationship is in trouble. If my wife stops loving me because I stop buying her flowers, our relationship is in trouble. If I stop loving my wife because my wife uh, stops giving me a kiss and saying goodnight every night, then our relationship is in trouble. You perhaps have known couples who define their love by actions so that if those actions are non-existent, their love diminishes and they are confused. They get angry. But these things do not define our love. They are intended to strengthen our love. They help us remember our love, to renew our commitment to our love. They are a framework that gives us the, that helps us maintain an understanding of that which we vowed on the day that we got married. And this is the same with religion in a spiritual sense. God has chosen to place his love on me. I have chosen to place my love on him. Religion is not what defines that love, but it is the framework within which that love is strengthened and maintained. Religion helps me remember my love for God and keeps me in that love. And today I want to dig down into that choice as we walk through Luke 12, verses 1 through 12. Long introduction today. But in Luke 12, verses 1 through 12, we're going to dig down into that choice to the thing below religion that compels us to recognize that we need religion. 
We're going to see why religion simply isn't enough, however. And through some very stern and serious words from Jesus, we will be compelled to search our own hearts and prove our own motivations for what we do. So let's dig in after that long intro. Uh, in verse 1 of Luke 12, the Bible says this, In the meantime, when they were, when there were gathered, excuse me, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, and so much that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the text introduces the relationship of chapter 12 to chapter 11 with the phrase, in the meantime. Recall Jesus had been sitting to eat with the with a Pharisee in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 37. We know that at least a lawyer was there as well. Perhaps some scribes were there also. And then at some point, that lawyer spoke up. That would be in a chapter 11, verse 45. Jesus' words, according to chapter 11, verses 53 and 54... Uh, were of such that they provoked the scribes and the Pharisees unto anger and they began to berate him. Uh, the Bible says to provoke him to speak many things, laying in wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So there were several people there. All the while, while these Pharisees, Sadducees and, and lawyers were, were bickering with Jesus, there is a multitude gathering, most likely outside of the house of the Pharisee, who were literally stepping upon one another, the Bible says, insomuch that they trod one upon another to see Jesus. And we might presume that Jesus stepped outside of the house and saw the crowd and thinking about this evil rejection of truth which the Pharisees and the scribes had just manifested. They're bickering back and forth. They're trying to accuse him. He has just told them uh, that they're like a cup that's clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. They completely rejected it. He is probably deeply sorrowful. And he steps outside and he sees the multitudes. And he looks into their eyes. And he recognizes how many of them might just be there for food or to see miracles. How many of them were vehement followers of the doctrines of the Pharisees and the scribes. And the lawyers whom Jesus said held the key of knowledge but did not enter in themselves. And not only that, but hindered those that would enter in. And he began to say to his disciples, the disciples scattered throughout the multitudes, perhaps his twelve to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Certainly as 12 were there also. Now leaven in the Bible is a fermenting agent, not just in the Bible. Leaven is a fermenting agent. It's often added to bread to cause little air pockets to form in it so that the bread becomes lighter and fluffier. It's what causes bread to rise. You don't put leaven in bread, leaven, uh, the bread stays flat. You put leaven in the bread and it causes the bread to rise. What's going on there? It's a fermentation process where it, it, it's foaming and as it's foaming, it's leaving air pockets. And those air pockets are very small, but they're making the bread expand so that it takes the amount of, of um, dough that you have and it, it, it expands it. Because there's little air pockets and it makes the bread light and fluffy. But the process uses fermentation by which sugars are broken down into acids, gases, and alcohol. Or alcohol, not, not all three. And as such, it became representative in the Bible of corruption or impurity. Leaven became representative of taking something in its pure form and changing it tainting it. 
The use of leaven in the scriptures is actually threefold. First, leaven can speak of the process, actual physical, literal process of adding leaven to breads. More often spoken of in the physical sense to designate bread as unleavened. So there was a feast of unleavened bread. Uh, they spoke of unleavened bread quite often in the Old Testament uh, as unleavened bread was used in various ceremonies and such. And so unleavened bread, when you see that word leaven, oftentimes it can just speak of the actual physical process of leavening or not leavening bread. And the reason why unleavened comes up so often is because the law did require unleavened bread to be used in its observances. There was to be no leaven present even in the house of the Jewish people during Passover. Passover gave way to a feast appropriately named the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So God used the concept of leaven to, even in a physical sense, to teach of a spiritual taint. And this is our second primary usage. So first, that literal use of actual talking about leaven that goes into bread. Second, a spiritual use. That God and His prophets use the concept of leaven to speak of what sin does to people. That even a small bit of sin in a man's life can corrupt him. And even a small bit of sin in a church can corrupt the whole church. So Paul would say regarding a brother living in open sin, as a matter of fact, having an uh, inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8, through Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge ye out therefore, purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is not saying here that we're not allowed to physically eat leavened bread. He's not talking in a physical sense here. He is using leaven, as it was often used in the Old Testament, as an analogy for sin or for impurity of life, which would fundamentally change the essence of the one who in whom it was found. Or in the body in which it's found. So here Paul's saying, look, you have a man in your church who is in open sin. And you have not done anything about it. You need to get him out of the church. You need to cast out the leaven. You need to get rid of it so that you can be a new lump. You can be a pure lump. Get rid of the leaven. Because he is not just tainting himself. He's tainting the whole body of Christ through openly sinning. When people openly sin in the church and the church leadership does nothing about it, this taints the body of Christ. Because what it does is it, through silence, it validates in the minds of some people sin. Well, if pastor lets them do it, if pastor doesn't call them out, then I guess it's okay. Or, pastor's not calling them out, and then that makes people in the church angry. And then they get angry at pastor, and they get embittered at pastor. Why isn't pastor doing his job? Why isn't pastor saying what needs to be said? Why aren't the elders doing something about this person? And then there becomes rumors, and there becomes bitterness, and there becomes uh, uh, factions, and people start to divide one against another, and it's all because of the leaven of sin that was not removed from the lump. Now, it's interesting, however, about this concept of leaven, is that... There is one time in Scripture, however, where leaven is used in a positive sense. Not to highlight its corruption or its fermenting ability, but rather to highlight how it can take something very small, a small amount of dough, 
and make it expand and grow. So using leaven in the positive sense. And we find this example in Matthew thirteen thirty three in the parables of the kingdom. Jesus says, Another parable spake ye unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Jesus in Matthew 13 likens the kingdom of heaven to leaven. He is not saying by that that the kingdom of heaven is a corrupting influence. But as an illustration of how the kingdom will grow. It will begin as a few kingdom citizens, very small. But as those few bits of leaven get into the communities, those few will have an influence upon the whole. And so the gospel of the kingdom will reach the farthest corners of the world, though it began very small. And this is what God wants to happen in every local church. That a small group of believers such as ourselves get into a community such as Buffalo and we are, in a positive sense, the leaven of this community. And we come into this community and then we begin to grow. And we touch the whole community through our influence. And so Jesus used it in a positive sense. However, the vast majority of times, save for that one instance, any analogy to leaven in the Bible was used to illustrate a spiritual taint. Something which corrupts fundamentally and alters the state for, of others for worse. Now, if you have a red letter Bible, which would designate the words of Jesus, you will notice that the red letters begin in the second half of verse 1 and continue all the way down to verse 12. So when we see, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, in your Bible that would all be red lettered. And that's fine. But I want to remind you that those red letters are not inspired. That they are added by an interpreter based upon their assumptions as to whether Jesus is speaking and when he did not. Now, in the Greek and the Hebrew, they did not have quotation marks around their writings to designate when somebody was speaking. They used contextual clues to help us know. And generally, the author uses transition words to show when a person is speaking or when a writer may be commenting. But it's not always 100% clear. And I would wonder if those last three words in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, which is hypocrisy, those three words, should be counted as the words of Jesus, or whether they should be counted as Luke's commentary on the words of Jesus. And the reason why I would wonder this is because of the parallel accounts of Jesus' words that we find in Matthew 16, verse 6, And Mark 8, verse 15. Let me show you the Matthew 16, verse 6 passage so that you can understand why I wonder about this. We read in Matthew 16, verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is this because we have taken no bread? Which, uh, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand... Neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand and the many baskets ye took up, neither the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets ye took up. How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, 
but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So as this unfolds in Matthew, Jesus tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples naturally assume that Jesus is warning them that the Pharisees and Sadducees had somehow sabotaged their bread or that they it meant that Jesus was upset that they did not bring their own bread and so now they had to eat the bread that was offered to them by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, they would not have been confused about that if Jesus had said what we read in Luke, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If Jesus had said, which is hypocrisy at the end, then they would not have wondered what Jesus was talking about. But it seems as though Jesus simply stated, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to which the disciples then were confused and uh, said in their hearts, how, how is this? Be, uh, did he say this because we didn't bring bread and such? And then Jesus is able to explain this to them. It was then after Jesus explained to them that he's not talking about the physical. After all, he multiplied the, the loaves and the fishes. For, he did it for the 5,000. He did it for, for, for the, 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 uh, the multitudes, for the 4,000. And if he did it in both of those instances, then Jesus isn't upset that they didn't bring enough bread. He can make that whenever he wants. He said, rather, I'm warning you against their doctrine. I'm warning you against their teachings. By this reckoning, it may be that that these last three words, which is hypocrisy found in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, are actually Luke's comments. And he perhaps did this to kind of cut through all that other stuff rather than give all of that extra teaching. Either way, however, the disciples eventually understood what Jesus was warning against. It's really neither here nor there in one sense, but I do want to help you think through these things. His warning, however, is very clear. Do not follow the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their hypocritical teachings. And as Jesus continues, he doesn't continue by expounding upon those hypocritical, uh, those hypocritical teachings. He doesn't continue by saying, and these are the hypocritical teachings. We, in fact, covered that together last week. Rather, he continues by telling them why the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is leaven. Why it's so dangerous and so evil. And Jesus does this by digging to that foundation that we're talking about today, the root of religious devotion. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and whatsoever ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon excuse me, the housetops. The reason why we must beware of spiritual and religious hypocrisy is because there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. There is nothing hid that shall not be known. What is said in darkness, which we think we've got away with and no one's heard, will be heard on the day of judgment in the light. What we have spoken in silence and privacy of the closet will be proclaimed publicly on the day of judgment. It has been said that character is what you do when no one is watching. Well, spiritual character is what you do because you understand that there is always someone watching. Spiritual character is what you do because you understand that there is always someone watching. And what he sees, that one being God, matters. And it ought to matter to you. And Jesus tells 
us that this understanding should cause us to fear. Verses 4 and 5. He says, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which, after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Don't fear those that can kill the body and then have no more power over you. Fear instead he that, after the body has died, has the power to cast men into hell. Now we mentioned last time that religion ought not be used as a weapon to motivate people to do religious acts as an outworking of guilt or as shame. But we must distinguish religious fear with spiritual fear. The lawyers of Israel used religion to threaten the people that if they did not do certain deeds, give certain amounts of money, they would incur the wrath of God. They used it to keep people in shame and in guilt. But we do not dare say then that we need not fear the spiritual consequences of a heart that blasphemes God. Whether or not they do outward religious things. And this is the warning which Jesus gives us here. That if you're going to fear, don't fear powerful men who would seek to control you through religious dictates and expectations. And as we continue through the text, don't fear men who will seek to persecute you and cause you to conform to their religion or else die or or else be imprisoned. But what you should fear is a thrice holy God who knows what you think. Who knows what you say when no one is around? Who knows the very deepest secrets of your heart? Don't fear the people who can look, who can be fooled simply by looking at you and thinking because you look great on the outside, you're a great person. Fear God who knows your deepest secrets. And who on the day of judgment will not simply judge what other men saw in you, but will judge what no man saw in you. Judge your motives. Judge your secrets. Not just the content of your actions, but the content of your heart. And this should cause you to fear. And then it should cause you to repent, to change. Let's talk for a moment about this concept of fear. The idea of fear in the Bible is not directly an emotion of terror. Just like love is not always uh, implicitly an emotional idea, it is a choice. Uh, fear is not necessarily just an emotion of terror, such as you might feel when you see a big spider, or when you're swimming in a lake and you can't see the bottom, or when you're high in the air and you feel unsteady about what you're standing on, or what you're hanging in, or whatever the case may be. Uh, not even more, we might, we might say more legitimate fears. Uh, I'm not saying those aren't all legitimate fears, but uh, deeper fears, like when a soldier is in the trenches and bullets are flying over his head, or when a patient is diagnosed with a terminal disease, terminal cancer, and they're, they're thinking about that end, or when a parent sees a child run out into a busy road without looking. Those are very legitimate, and perhaps more so, we might say, than those other ones. You can debate me on that. We don't need to debate about that. But one way or another, some serious fears, Right? When the Bible speaks of fear, there's certainly an element of terror involved, but it is more the idea of reverence or respect for the authority or the power of another. Now, if you reverence and respect the authority and the power of God, it can bring about a terror. And Hebrews speaks of knowing the terror of the Lord, we seek to persuade men. But this is the kind of fear that you might have of fire. 
it may not be, I don't, I don't fear fire in the sense that when I see fire, I'm afraid of it. I want to run in the other direction. In fact, I quite enjoy fire in that sense. We enjoy lighting fires, having fires in our fire pit at home and whatnot. So we don't fear fire in that sense, but we do have a fear of fire. We have a healthy respect for what fire can do when it gets out of control, when it's uncontained. This is the kind of fear that you might have for police officers. That you don't necessarily have in your heart, or I hope you don't, or thank the Lord, at least in our community, we don't have to have a terror in our heart when we see a police officer, so that if you see a police officer, you run the other way. By the way, if you do that, the Bible says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. But there should not be a terror in our hearts whereby we see a police officer and we say, "Uh uh-oh, bad things are about to happen. In some countries, that's the case. In our country, that's not necessarily the case, or at least in our community. But there ought to be a healthy respect for this authority, right? So that if that authority is around, you would fear to do wrong because they have the power to enforce the power of the state against you. Have you ever noticed just how differently people act when they know they're being watched? This is what it means to fear the Lord. You know that God is God. You know that he holds the keys to heaven and hell. And more specifically in this context, you know that even if no one else is looking, God is looking. And if you believe this, it will fundamentally change the way you live your life. You know, children who would otherwise misbehave don't misbehave when parents are standing around, do they? Have you ever been in one of those situations where a child was about to do something and then they realize they're being watched and they don't do it? In mid-motion, right? What happened there? They realized they were being watched. A person who wouldn't normally, uh, who would normally speed, perhaps doesn't speed when there's actually a police officer right behind him. This is that fear. This is a fear of authority. Not a terror but in understanding that because they see me, they can mete out consequences for my actions of which I want to do wrong and then I'm compelled to do right. Now imagine if your moral authority was watching you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Imagine children, if mom and dad watched you every second of every day, all the time. Imagine if a police officer walked around watching everything that you did all day. Watch what you did when you sat down in your computer. Watch what you did when you went to the store. Watch what you did when you got in your car and you drove. It would fundamentally change the way you acted, wouldn't it? Imagine if even that authority knew your very thoughts. So that it's not just what you did but literally what you thought that they could know. And now take all of that imagining and understand that this is real life, folks. This is real. This is the reality in which every man lives. God sees you, not just what you do, but he knows what's in your heart, knows what's in your intentions, knows what's in your mind, and he will judge you not just on your actions, but on your heart. And your intentions. You can't come to church on Sunday, live like a saint. Then go home and live like a devil Monday through Saturday and think that your Sunday behavior is fooling God into thinking that you're some person that you aren't. You can fool your pastor. You can fool your parents. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your siblings. You can fool your children. But you cannot fool God. 
And this should cause you to fear. Because God is just. And those things done in secret shall be made known. Is this not what Jesus told the disciples back in Luke chapter 8, verses 17 and 18? Jesus said, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. You are responsible for what you hear. So take heed how you hear. Take heed that you are hearing in such a way that it will work forth in you doing. Sometimes my children do this, where they uh, do something wrong, and I say, I've told you not to do that. And they said, well, we didn't hear you. That's not going to work with God. God knows whether or not you've heard Him. God knows your heart. So Jesus says, take heed. And he based this warning on the reality that God is watching. Now, it's important to understand here that Jesus is not just warning the disciples that if they don't do enough proper works, they will be cast into hell. As a matter of fact, he's not warning that at all. Take out that just. He's not warning them that if they don't do proper acts, that they will end up being cast into hell. We know the simplicity of the gospel. That salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We know that works cannot save us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our works do not qualify us for heaven or disqualify us from heaven. Belief or unbelief is the hinge by which we either end up in heaven. When we believe, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. When we, Before we've believed, we are called being in unbelief. From the day we're born, we are in unbelief. Our name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. We are in unbelief. The day we believe, we are in belief. We are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is what determines heaven and hell. And if that is indeed the case, then what is Jesus warning here when he turns to his disciples and says, fear God that can cast men into hell? And this is why context is so important. Because we know that Jesus just finished rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their hypocrisy and the lawyers. For doing religious things without a spiritual foundation. For acting in religious ways, not truly compelled by a love for God, but rather by a self-righteous love and pride in their own pious actions. Then in verse 1, Jesus warns about this leaven. And we find that leaven to be hypocrisy. So Jesus' warning here is not to those who are in Christ. He's not speaking to those specifically who are in Christ, who have already accepted Christ, who have already gotten the foundation of, of a relationship with God right, and now they're building upon it a religious house. But rather, Jesus is warning those disciples who were following him, who weren't following him, but who were following the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They were clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. You say, Pastor, were there any of those? Well, we know of at least one, right? The son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. So if no one else, Jesus was speaking to him on this, in this warning. Jesus then continues in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. 
Beginning in verse 6, Jesus contrasts the fear of those living in spiritual hypocrisy, because God is watching them and they are false, with the peace of those living in spiritual obedience, because God is watching and they are true. This is the difference. When we talked about weaponizing religion, this is the difference between living in a religion of guilt and shame and living a religious system of joy and love. Jesus reminds his followers that sparrows are very inexpensive. And in the eyes of man, they are worth very little. Five sparrows for two farthings. The actual monetary value here was not a farthing. The King James translators used the word farthing in order that the readers of the day could understand the currency and relate it to them. We might actually uh, translate it into our day by talking about uh, something perhaps to the effect of a dollar or five dollars. We, we, we'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. The actual monetary value was called an asarius, which would have been about one-sixteenth of a denarius, and a denarius was a day's wage. So, if a day's wage today would be something like $160 for the day, let's say, that would be a $20 an hour day if you're working eight hours. So, uh, But if, if you get $160 for a day, just hypothetically, well, the five sparrows would cost 10 of those dollars. A fairly minimal sum if you're making $160 a day to buy five sparrows for 10 bucks. Yet Jesus says, not one of those even minor sparrows is forgotten before God. He sees them. He knows them. Furthermore, Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. God knows everything about you. He sees you at all points. It's not just that he knows what you do. It's not just that he knows what you say. It's not just that he knows what, he, what you think. He knows every element of you. And by the way, Jesus says, Ye are of more value than many sparrows. Do you see the contrast here between the guilt or the danger, the fear that ought to be in the heart of a man who is a hypocrite, and the joy that ought to be in a man who knows God sees him, who is not a hypocrite? You know, it ought to encourage you if you're right with God that God sees you at all times. Because that means that when you do things around the church and pastor doesn't even say thank you, which is a shame, by the way, when I fail to recognize people who are, who are helping. But if you get no thank you for what you do, you know this, that God saw. If you get no thank you when you helped that person, God saw. When other people berate you and tear you down and make you feel like you're worthless, God knows the very number of hairs on your head and you are more valuable to him than sparrows. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Man and animal do not share the same value before God. God has made man in his image. But gather this contrast. Jesus warns against spiritual hypocrisy because God sees you and he holds the power over heaven and hell. But as we made clear, this was not a threat to those who believed. Only to those who were pretending to believe. But then Jesus comforts. And this same God sees and knows the spiritually obedient. And not only does he see and know you, but you are of great value to him. 
And so the contrast is made very clear in verses 8 through 10. Jesus says, Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And once again, the gospel, as the gospel always does, the condition of salvation falls back upon belief, upon faith alone. What Jesus calls belief in John 3, what is called in 1 Peter, the answer of a good conscience toward God, what is called here, confession of Christ. These are not contradictory ideas. We don't have to stack them all together. They're not different conditions. We know from the book of James that faith without works is dead, being alone. We often speak of belief unto salvation as being much more than just mental agreement with the facts of the gospel and of salvation. A person can understand in their head that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross and that he rose again and that he will offer salvation to those who receive it. A person can understand all of that in their head and not actually make it their own and not actually receive the gift and not actually accept the gospel, come to that point of decision. Now, when we preach the gospel, what we need to do is boil it down to what we call at Legacy Baptist Church the least common denominator, the thing which every presentation of the gospel clearly describes, and that's belief. The only thing that every clear presentation of the gospel has in common is belief. Romans 10 speaks of confessing with your mouth. But if verbal confession is a requirement in order for salvation to take place, then what Jesus gave Nicodemus in John 3 was an inadequate gospel because he didn't mention that. The book of Acts regularly speaks of believing and being baptized unto salvation. But if water baptism is a requirement in order for salvation to take place, then Jesus gave the thief on the cross a false promise in Luke 23, 42. So how do we reconcile these passages? Well, we understand the difference between the moment of salvation and the inevitable effects of salvation. So while salvation is by belief alone, anybody who receives Christ will confess Christ openly. If he is unwilling to confess Christ openly, then that man has never truly believed. And Christ will not confess him openly. If he denies Christ before men, then that man will never truly believed and Christ will deny him before the Father. Now, let me put your mind at ease in this instance. Many a believer has worried that if they were to stand before men and need to confess Christ or die, that he would fall short of that confession and he, and, and he would not make that decision and then Christ would deny him. But that's not really how this works. May I encourage you to alter your perspective on that just a little bit? The idea is not that I should fear standing before authorities because I fear that I might deny Christ in that moment of terror and, and that perhaps the, the threat of death and so fall short of Christ. The idea is rather that if you are in Christ... Should you ever stand before authorities, you can know without question that you will not deny Christ. 
May I say that again? The idea is not that you should fear standing before authorities because you don't know whether or not you will deny Christ. You think you're in Christ, but uh, on the day that you stand before authorities, you're just afraid that you're not going to say the right thing and Christ will deny you. Even though you've done everything you've, you've believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The idea is rather that if you are in Christ, should you ever stand before authorities, you can know that you will not deny Christ. Do you understand the difference? Let your confidence in your salvation compel your confidence to speak in his name. Don't allow your fear of falling short of speaking in his name or confessing him to cause you to doubt your salvation. And I can tell you why I believe this change in perspective is important and biblical. Because of verses 11 and 12 of Luke 12. Now, we'll come back to the discussion of blasphemy and the whole, of the Holy Spirit in a moment. I'm not skipping it. But let me continue on to verses 11 and 12 to see, to, to prove what I'm saying. Verses 11 and 12 say this. Jesus speaking. And when they bring you in unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. Do you see it? Jesus does not put the pressure to stand for Christ in the day of danger, adversity, and persecution on your shoulders. You do not have to sit there and wring your hands and say, oh, I'm just, I'm not a very courageous person. And so on the day that I have to answer for Christ, I'm probably going to fall short and then he's going to deny me, even though I love him and I want to do what's right and I believe on his name and I believe the gospel with all my heart and I've accepted it. Oh, but I'm just such a timid person. I don't know if I could do that. Jesus says that there's coming a day when his true followers, those who confess him before men, those who believe on his name, there's coming a day in that generation, not necessarily every generation, but in that generation where some of them will stand before earthly powers and they will be given an ultimatum. Either confess that, that Christ is not Lord or be punished. For some, confess that Christ is not Lord or die. Jesus says, don't worry about that day. If you are in Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, Jesus says, don't worry about that day. Don't waste your time thinking about it. Don't allow the hypothetical danger to cause you to fear for your own salvation. Let your confidence in Christ and His promise of salvation cause you to rest in His grace in the day of danger. Please note as well, before we move back to verse 10, that there is a difference between denying Christ and not speaking up for Christ. Perhaps you've been around friends and they've been talking about religion and you kept your mouth shut. And this is the fear of man. And then you've walked away and you said, you know, I really should have said something. Shame on me. Certainly the fear of man is something God has not given to you. The fear of man is not of God. But it does not inherently mean that you're not a Christian. It might be a good reason for you to examine whether or not you're in the faith, to examine why you were ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. But don't allow a moment of fear to lead you into the condemnation of the devil. And, and we talked about that difference, right? Condemnation and guilt are emotions and feelings which tear you down and lead to discouragement and sorrow. Conviction of God is an emotion or a feeling which compels you to become better, to grow in Christ, to make you better in the latter end. 
They are not the same. Conviction is a blessing from God. Condemnation and guilt are God-forsaken tools of Satan and your flesh to hold you down and keep you in despair, sorrow, and make you ineffective for Christ. Now, before we apply, we must speak about verse 10. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. This is, and rightly so, called the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. The only sin that has not been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the only sin for which a man will be sentenced to eternity in hell. The only sin which Jesus did not pay for on the cross. Make no mistake, the manifold sins that we commit put us on the path to hell. They put us in that state of unbelief that we've spoken of. But there's only one sin on the day of judgment that will turn a person to hell. Jesus said that all of the speaking against his name and his ministry can be forgiven. But when the Holy Ghost is blasphemed, this is a sin which Jesus will not forgive. So that begs the question, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, in a word, it means to reject the gospel. To reject the revealing and convincing power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And how do we know this? Well, let's start in context and we'll work our way outward. Notice that, notice the context within which it sits. It sits within a contrast between those who confess Jesus' name and those who deny Jesus' name. The context so clearly distinguishes between those who have accepted the gospel and those who have not. Consider then what Jesus said in John 16 about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this world. John 16, verses 7 through 11. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you a tr- the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Comforter being the Holy Spirit. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Jesus says the function of the Holy Spirit, called here the Comforter, in this world is to convict men of the truth of the gospel, that they are sinners because they rest in unbelief, their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, that Jesus is righteous, that he is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, and that he has taken our penalty, that he is holy and we are not, and that those who do not accept Jesus will be judged as Satan will be judged because They have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If this is the message of the Holy Spirit in this world, if His message to the world is to convict their hearts of the truth of the gospel and to draw men to Christ, then surely it is the rejection of this message. It is the rejection of this conviction that blasphemes Him. Unbelief alone, a state into which the Bible says we are born through sin, is the condition for which men will be condemned sinners. And this is made clear. I think I've used this verse three weeks in a row now. In John 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. Here it is. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The man who hath not believed, he's in a state of unbelief, he's born into it, is condemned already. And on the day he stands before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. For uh, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, that would be the many books, the books of our works, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which was in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Here it is. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Do you see it? So it wasn't out of the books of our works that, that it was decided who was cast into the lake of fire. The people that were cast into the lake of fire were cast into the lake of fire because their name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. All men will be judged for the sins that they commit, believer and unbeliever alike, through the book of our works on the judgment day. But then the book of life will be opened. And on the pages of the book of life will be the names of those who have believed the gospel and who have confessed Christ. And missing from those pages will be those who have not believed. Those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit by rejecting His revelation into their heart, their, their sinful hearts of their sinful condition and their need to repent of their dead works and to turn to Christ. Hebrews 6, 1. And to resist conviction, to resist conviction is to resist the Holy Spirit. And to resist the Holy Spirit is to blaspheme Him. And this was Jesus' warning. Because the Jews were notorious blasphemers of the Holy Spirit. They were notorious resistors of the Spirit of God. I read it last week. I'll read it again. Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 verse 51 to the Sanhedrin council, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. To blaspheme the Holy Ghost is to reject the gospel. And those who, uh, after having died, went to their death, having never accepted the gospel, went to their death, having blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God who has revealed it to them. Those who reject the gospel are those whose names are not found written in the book of life. Those whose names are not found written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire because that sin, that sin of unbelief, that sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven them. It is the one sin for which Jesus did not cover on the cross, for which Jesus will not forgive. Let's fly. We've learned much. And I pray that this message has already brought clarity. But I have two thoughts to apply as we close today, this morning. Question number one is simply this, and, and please consider this, every one of you. Are you a true follower of Christ? Foundational. This is the foundation of religion. This is the foundation of religion. Religion means nothing. It's not pure. Religion means nothing until you first accepted Christ. Are you a true follower of Christ? Or are you just religious? Are you living in spiritual hypocrisy? 
If so, let me warn you. Don't fear what your friends and family and society might think. Don't keep playing the game with your salvation, pretending that you're saved, pretending that you actually care about this stuff, pretending you care what the Bible has to say, pretending that that you are in Christ, pretending that you're convicted of sin, pretending that he chastens you when you do wrong. Don't play the game because you don't want people to know that you're faking it. Don't fear the people that are sitting around you today. Don't keep rejecting the gospel and blaspheming the conviction of the Holy Spirit because your friends will think that you're weird if you accept Christ or because they already think you've accepted and they'll think that you were something, which you were, a hypocrite, if you admit it. Fear God, who is able not just to kill the body but then to send the the soul to hell. And if you today are under conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are not a believer, that you've been playing the game, that you have allowed the fear of men or the pressures of culture, even church culture, that you've come into this church and you've sat in these seats and you feel like I need to look a certain way and I need to act a certain way. Uh, Everyone here, they all say they're believers, so I need to be one too. Don't allow those things to keep you from Christ. Don't continue to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Repent of the dead works, of the self-righteousness, of the hypocrisy, and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Recognize there is nothing that you can do to get yourself to heaven. Recognize that you're not going to get there because you've looked good on the outside. Believe in your heart. Truly believe that you're a sinner. That Jesus is God who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. That Jesus rose again the third day in victory over death. That he is alive and he promised that you will be alive too. Eternal life. If you will but accept the gift. Believe that he's coming back for you. And that you'll be one of those that are with him. That your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you truly believe... John 1 verse 12 says, But as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You'll be adopted into the family of God. You'll be made a son. And you can't be unmade. You'll be made a new creation in Christ. That can't be undone. You will be in Christ. You will have eternal life. You will be saved. It is as good as done the moment you truly believe. So the question, are you a true follower of Christ? If not, today is the day. Would you make that decision? Our second point. Oh, by the way, I, I know that that um, um, I'm not always present. But would you talk with someone if you don't understand this? If you need more information, would you talk with someone and get that information, get it taken care of? Point number two, final point. Remember this, folks. Remember this, brethren. There is always someone watching. Do you understand that God sees what you do? Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Job 34.21 For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. Proverbs 5.21 For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Jeremiah 32.19 Great in counsel and mighty in works, for thine eyes are open unto all the ways of the sons of man to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. 
And we're obviously not in Ecclesiastes this morning, but let me spoil the ending for you in order to make this point very clear. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing because He sees it, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Nothing is hid from the Lord, believer. What you do in darkness, God sees in the light. What you do on your computer, God knows. What you do on your cell phone, your parents may not know. Your spouse may not know. God knows. What you think in your heart, God knows. What you say in your mind when your parents tell you to do something and you don't talk back to them in your, with your lips, but you talk back in your mind, God knows. He's heard it. No matter how you look on the outside, no matter how clean the cup is on the outside, what you are on the inside matters to God. And this is the essence of what compels Christian character. Because character is what you do when no one is watching. But you and I know full well that someone is always watching. And because God is always watching, all of those secrets in our hearts will one day be made known. And so it would be in our best interest to not have any secrets. To not have any black marks. Be in our best interest to walk moment by moment, inside and out, in purity before the Lord. Children, do you have the wisdom and fear of God for your secret sins more than you are afraid to disappoint your parents? Your parents love you. They want to help you. They want to give you victory. They are trying to train you up to be what you ought to be today so that when you get into society, you can live for Christ. Don't be afraid to tell them that you've done wrong. Are you more afraid of your parents and the consequences of your action than you are of God? who sees and knows, who will judge you out of those books? Adult, do you have the wisdom and the fear of God for your secret sin more than the embarrassment of your brother in Christ knowing that that you have a problem so that he can help you? You know, the people in this room love you. They want to help you. They'll hold you accountable. They'll keep up with you. They'll pray for you. They won't judge you. We're all sinners. Are we so afraid of the society, culture, and religious consequences of our secret sins that we would rather continue in our secret sins and incur greater greater judgment on the day of judgment than stop them because of what society, culture, or authorities might think? And if this is the case, then simply put, you lack wisdom. There is always someone watching, believer. And what that one thinks is far more important than what the world thinks or the church thinks. Would you repent today? Cleanse your heart of your sin and be as right on the inside which God sees as you are on the outside which man sees. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your love for us. I pray for God's people that they would understand these concepts of accountability. Pray that we would all understand that you see and that you know. 
that if there's anyone that's been playing the game, that today they would get that right. Pray that you would help us to be men and women of sincerity before you. And that as we pursue religion in any given day or week, that it would be properly founded upon the relationship that we have with Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.